this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Evan, the founder at Ampleforth, with me today. Evan, how is it going? Great, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I really appreciate taking the time to uh, invite me. Absolutely. So Ampleforth is a project I've been looking at for quite some time. There's this notion out there. And for those that have listened, you know, we've had conversations about stable coins, although this is not a stable coin. I want to be very clear that Ampleforth does, does not designate this as a stable coin. But there is this conversation in the universe out there for people who are outside of the crypto sandbox of the differentials between, say, something like a Bitcoin or even things like Ethereum or Tezos and some of the other digital assets and something that has a little bit more of a stable slash kind of almost, dare I call it, a peg, something that is not as volatile, something that can be used more as a medium of exchange and not necessarily a in- instrument or a unit that has you know potential accretive value or something that you speculate on just something that you can use, but something that you can use that has the principles and the designs of a distributed and decentralized system and an asset. And so we're going to have a great conversation about that. But before we get too into the weeds about that, I like to talk to people about what got them here, what got you into this world. And it's not necessarily the the when Bitcoin moment. I don't want to hear about 2011 or 2012, blah, blah. What about the actual architecture? What about the actual pieces of distributed and decentralized systems really resonated to you and said, this is where I want to build something going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. So yeah, thanks for the the long caveat about us not being a stable coin. Uh, we tend to avoid, you know, use of crypto specific terminology here at Ampleforth. And we try to kind of describe everything as economically as possible. So I appreciate that. Um, real quick, I'll give you some background on myself. Um, as David mentioned, I'm, I'm the founder of Ampleforth, but uh, I went to school at UC Berkeley, and most of my studies there focused on mechanical engineering and computer science. Um, and without getting into the details of like where I was when I first heard about Bitcoin, I can I can talk about um, what architecturally was in- interesting to me, and so. The first thing um, that I kind of noted when I read the paper was that this is an extremely inefficient system. So, you know, just from a computer science perspective, you tend to think about designing systems that can scale well. Um, uh, and I, I, I definitely remember thinking, wow, this is really, really inefficient. Why would they design it this way? Uh, and upon kind of like thinking about it a bit more, um, I kind of came to this conclusion that you know, what the Bitcoin protocol had really succeeded in doing was creating scarcity in a purely digital context, which is, is, it's a big deal if you think about it. You know, the reason why people don't bring, you know, phones to bachelor parties or bachelorette parties is because there's no scarcity in the digital world. You don't want embarrassing photos of yourself taking tequila shots everywhere on the internet all the time. And, and the Bitcoin protocol had really succeeded in, in creating scarcity. And the second thought that I had was that, like, you know, it's really a lot like gold, right? Um, in that it's absolutely scarce, but also in that it's kind of like a natural resource. Um, it, it, was, it wasn't a bank. So I remember having this thought, you know, that like, okay, if we had created this new digital bank, 
And, uh, we, you know, we had kind of explained that to someone long ago, you know, they might think that, well, that's a really cool and astute man-made accomplishment. The, the Medici's would have been proud of you. But, you know, when you think about creating something that's analogous to a natural resource, then you get into something kind of interesting because, you know, I start to imagine Isaac Newton deep in a basement, famously obsessed with alchemy, you know, trying to produce gold. I think he might have been impressed, right? So we're now at this kind of Isaac Newton level coolness as opposed to just like the Medici family level of coolness. And yeah, I mean, you know, from my perspective, you know, I, I lost my father as a very young child and that kind of changes um, your perception of the world. You start to think a lot more about really long timescales and, you know, immortality and death and, and, and so on and so forth. And so this appeal of creating something that might last beyond your time was always very high on my list of um, desirable outcomes. And, yeah. you know, a natural resource certainly is something that's perennial. It came before banks and it can live way beyond banks and perhaps beyond humanity. Um, and I mean, I get that that's a little heavy, but it kind of dovetails nicely into uh, what I think was the invitation to kind of um, go on this journey. And so when, when the Ethereum platform came out, um, we're talking about now kind of smart contracts, um, something that's near turn complete, a programmable platform. And, you know, I had I had been talking to Brandon, my, my co-founder, um, who was at Google at the time and then went to Uber. Um, and it really did seem like an invitation to design something that might last forever. Um, and him having kind of gone through really, really heroic efforts as an engineer, um, the engineer's engineer to scale, you know, extraordinarily complex systems and having also come to the realization that, you know, pretty much every line of code he'd ever written would one day be replaced and go away. He, he shared in that desire to create something that could last forever or, or at least last long, long beyond ourselves. Um, and, you know, putting some of these things together, really, you know, the Ethereum platform to us was, you know, an invitation to redesign scarcity. So given that the Bitcoin protocol had shown that we could create scarcity in a purely digital context, the question now was like, well, how should we create scarcity? Right. And that was the beginning of a pretty epic journey. Wow. That's I have to say, I've done over a hundred and some of these in the last year. And that's the first time that anyone has said that they want to create something that outlasts them. And so that is fairly deep and prophetic and really interesting. So hats off to you on that one, because no one has come on the show to talk about that. So that's the first. So that's really cool. So I'm glad you I'm glad you said that. But yeah, I'm guessing you haven't had Satoshi Nakamoto on this show because yeah. my suspicion is that they have very long vision. <laughs> yeah, Satoshi has not been on the show. He or she or it have not been on the show yet, but the invitation's open. Um and so I want to get into this a little bit more. So you started talking about supply, you started talking about kind of the components. And so from your website, the Ample is a commodity money like Bitcoin or gold, but with near perfect supply elasticity, like fiat. It is the first sound money with elastic supply. And so many in the Bitcoin community, and I'm sure you're aware of this, tout the 21 million hard cap as a very big feature. And 
as you said, digital scarcity as a component of that. We've already mined over 18 million of them. You know, possibly over 2 million have been lost because of key loss and other things of that nature. And so we're obviously about to go through the happening in about 100, maybe in 99 days, you know, give or take. Uh, when people are listening to this. And so we're going through that process right now of changing the reward patterns for people who are mining Bitcoin. And so there are all these things that are components of this kind of the scarcity that has been designed into that, which in turn, many people feel designates it or be, makes it become a store value because there's less of it and people people you know want to demand it, blah, blah, blah. You know the story. And so just as a differential between Ample and that, Tell us how that works. Yeah, before I get really deep into it, I mean, I kind of just come up, like to zoom out a little bit. And I will I will say that, you know, as Brandon and I embarked on this journey, um, we did, you know, keeping in mind we wanted to do something different that could last a really long time. We did go way out of our ways to explore what had been done in the field of monetary economics and what had not been done. Um, as you probably know, uh, we have seen absolutely scarce commodity monies like uh, gold and silver. Uh, so we've seen fixed supply. Um, we have also seen inflationary monies, right? So, you know, like the U.S. dollar as it is today is, is you know, pure fiat. It's a discretionary money that's inflating. Uh, we have explored that. And so um, before I get into answering your question, I want to kind of say that we really went out of our way to kind of investigate what had been explored, what has not been explored and what the open questions are remaining in money. And, you know, at some point we were even connected with Neil Ferguson and my dear friend now Manny at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. And, you know, these guys have been thinking about monetary economics since long before Bitcoin and, you know, they're standing on lifetimes of knowledge. Um, and so, uh, you know, as we think about things like Bitcoin and its fixed supply, it is absolutely true that um, its scarcity um, is what gives it the potential for being a great store value, much like gold. Um, you know, one of the things that we did kind of investigate greatly um, was kind of gold, gold redeemability under Bretton Woods. So um, as you guys probably know, there was a period of time uh, post-industrialization. Um, where we entered into this ability, right, to create fiat paper money that was um, cheap to produce, but very expensive to counterfeit. Um, but still, uh, for a time, we were in this system where the paper money itself was redeemable for gold under Bretton Woods. Um, and of course, you know, as the dollar was kind of experiencing a great deal of demand from outside the United States, uh, eventually we ran into this liquidity crisis where we couldn't get enough gold to back these dollars. And, you know, what happens in a situation like that is people get to realizing that, well, because there's all this dollar demand and that dollar demand translates into gold demand, then the gold nugget that I have today, which buys me, let's say, one refrigerator, might buy me two refrigerators tomorrow. So I'm not going to sell this gold. Um, and, and what that does is that, it, you know, further restricts the circulating supply of gold, right, uh, which further drives up the price of gold and you know, risks entering into a deflationary spiral. And so you know, there's this kind of really funny moment where, I mean, I guess at the time, this is 1971, everybody was obsessed with this show called Bonanza. Mm -hmm. And 
Nixon's presidential advisors go to him and say, like, Mr. President, we need to make the announcement tonight. And this is, of course, the announcement to cancel gold redeemability. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Everybody's tuned in for a bonanza. I'll do it tomorrow morning. And they pull him aside and they're, they're kind of just like, Mr. President, if we do not make the announcement tonight, there will be a run on gold. And so it's it's just really one of those moments where it's like uh, we interrupt the scheduled programming for an important announcement by the U.S. president. And that's the moment where he cancels gold redeemability. And that's because gold is vulnerable to runway deflation. And so, I mean, eventually, you know, we kind of found our way to Milton Freeman's research. And he had done a lot of thinking on commodity reserve currencies. And he had broke it down very simply. Um, the, the virtue of commodity monies like gold is that they're immune to runaway inflation because nobody, no individual can arbitrarily increase the supply of gold. It can't be debased. Um, the vice of gold is that it's vulnerable to runaway deflation uh, because the cost of producing gold is so high um, and the marginal output of new gold is small relative to the total stock. The supply is not elastic enough to respond to demand. Uh, and this is ultimately what forced us, you know, off of the gold standard and, and out of Bretton Woods. Um, it, we, we do know um, historically that fixed supply currencies uh, are limited in this fashion when used in support of an actual economy or when you build a banking system on top of that. And that's, this is just kind of, um, this is background information. And so in thinking about Bitcoin, which I do think will, uh, become a digital gold, in which I do think will become a great store of value. Um, the thing that is not explored and the limitation of it is that, you know, if you try to create a decentralized banking system on top of it or, um, you know, try to use it in support of, you know, a, a really, you know, a, you know, kind of robust economy, it, it will eventually run into this uh, limitation. And so, you know, being conscious of that, right, we, we kind of designed the ample such that, um, at the end of 1971, soon an alternate universe, you know, there's liquid amples everywhere. We could have swapped amples for gold and not have have to move to like a pure fiat money. Mm. Um, where, you know, it's very clear that, you know, at the end of 1971, if we were to make a one-for-one swap between like gold and Bitcoin, we'd, we'd be faced with the same dilemma. Mm. So, you know, if I were to describe, you know, the ample very, very simply, um, I would say that it, it's, it's kind of like an alien metal. Um, and this is kind of my mechanical engineering physics brain kicking in a little bit, but I've always imagined it kind of like, you know, you imagine you have like a, a cylinder and you pour mercury into it. Then you put it in contact with a hot body. What happens? You know, the mercury expands, right? You remove it from contact with the hot body and the mercury contracts. And, and if you were to evenly delimit lines vertically on the cylinder, you would get temperature, just kind of a measurement of thermal expansion. Now, now, mercury doesn't really have great monetary you know, properties like you know, durability, divisibility, and portability, availability, such, so on and so forth. Um, uh, but we, we, we kind of designed this such that it would expand and, crack, and contract not in response to nearby kinetic energy, but instead in response to exchange rate. So a proxy for demand. So when there's more demand, the quantity of amples increases pro rata like in a non-dilutional fashion. And, and when there's less demand, the quantity of amples contracts, it decreases proportionally. So it's similarly non-dilutive to Bitcoin insofar as um, 
say you, you were to buy like 210,000 Bitcoin, right? You'd have 1% of the total supply now and forever, whatever the market cap of Bitcoin may be, whether it's you know $10 or $10 trillion. The same is the case with Amples, where if you were to purchase you know a percent of the total supply you would forever have a percent of the supply whether you know the total quantity and market cap increases you know to like 10 trillion dollars or remains small like 10 million dollars um it's, tr- it's truly uh non-dilutive and it's absolutely scarce and um yes it's important for us that it is a commodity money because again you know in our minds right so we kind of differentiate between the creation of a bank and a money um and this is all over the economic literature as well there are theories of money and theories of banking and then attempts to kind of unify those theories a lot of folks nowadays kind of think of those concepts as interchangeable because the US dollar you know is a banking system right and you know most of the money that's circulating is kind of inside monies or you know, credit based IOUs you know, a small percentage of it is actually outside monies or paper monies. But um, yes, we, we the ample is a commodity money like Bitcoin or gold. Um, but it also has you know perfect supply elasticity like fiat. And the other thing to note about this commodity money is that um, it's absolutely scarce, right? So um, the way it reacts to price exchange rate is rules based. Um, again, I'll kind of mention the concept of rules versus description. You look into that yourself later, but like it's a rules-based system. Um, it's not at the discretion of individuals, and and therefore it has the potential to be both immune to runaway inflation as a base money, and immune to runaway deflation as a base money. So, and again, when I say base money, I mean you know the collateral asset or the money that a bank uses. So banks, you know, rely on base monies, um, and, and and the ample would be something like that. So let's dig into that. Um, we were going to talk about that anyway, but it's a good segue into that. So as a high-level ample forth, an ample protocol propagates price information into supply by reacting to nominal exchange rate information, which you just alluded to. So my brain and hopefully the listener's brain realizes that, as you mentioned, this is not from a centralized authority. This is more from like a DAO. This is more using things like smart contracts and thus the use of oracles. And so let's talk about how you're using oracles to validate a lot of that and make them perform it. But I also believe that you're working with Chainlink. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, first I would, I would you know, unpack a couple of the things that you said, right? We, we do react to price exchange rate that does require an oracle, but I, I wouldn't say this is more like a DAO. So um, again, kind of sticking to the, the economic vocabulary here. Um, this is kind of a, a government's minimized system. So, so commodity monies like Bitcoin, you know, or the Ample, don't require a lot of governance. It's it's not at all like a central bank in the sense that like you know you're constantly adjusting interest rates or fee rates or uh, reserve ratios or the composition of your collateral assets. There's not a lot of decision making to be made. There is a very simple set of rules that's kind of encoded into the smart contract. So, just as Bitcoin's supply mission curve and, and a total supply number is encoded into a set of rules that are um, deemed immutable. The ample is also encoded into a set of rules that are deemed immutable. There will not be a great deal of governance. So again, this is just separating the concept of money or commodity monies and banks where there really is a great deal of, of governance done or, or DAOs that are intended to govern kind of a portfolio of assets where there's a lot of kind of collective decision making to be made. One of the distinctions here is that this is a commodity money. Uh, there aren't really many decisions to be made here. 
uh, maybe tiny, tiny tweaks here and there, uh, just as like, you know, somebody might marginally increase or decrease the block size, you know, uh, in the Bitcoin protocol, you know, we might have subtle adjustments to like predefined hyperparameters like our reaction life. But the protocol itself is short enough to be written on the back of a napkin. And I'll go through that really, really quickly. So um, it, there is a price target. Uh, the price target is the CPI adjusted $2019. If let's just say Ample's are trading um, at $1. Um, if, if demand increases such that Ample's are now trading at $2, the system will increase supply pro rata. It, it will seek a price supply equilibrium such that it, rather than having one ample worth $2, you would have two amples each worth $1. Now, this won't happen instantaneously, but it will be the inherent tendency of the, of the system to find that price supply equilibrium. So if the, if the price is greater than the target, it increases supply pro rata. If the price is lower than the price target, it contracts supply pro rata. And again, the way it increases and decreases supply is not by buying back assets or airdropping coins or taking custody. Again, there's no balance sheet. This is not a bank. It increases or decreases supply by increasing or decreasing a coefficient of expansion. So hearkening back to the example of the alien metal or mercury, right? The rate at which it expands relative to kinetic energy is determined by this coefficient of expansion. We have a similar mechanism in our system where um, this one scalar variable gets um, adjusted on a daily basis in response to its um, nominal exchange rate. And that increases or decreases the supply of amples across all wallets, right? Um, whether you're plugged in, right, or not, it happens pretty much automatically um, for on-chain wallets. And it's, it's um, decentralized by nature. But if, for example, if you're a centralized exchange or a custodian, uh, and you pool wallets and you're really updating a bunch of, you know, um, values in the database, um, then you would have to do some sort of integration. But if you're in custody of your own coins or it's on a decentralized exchange, this kind of supply adjustment happens automatically across all wallets with a single transaction. It's not as though we need to send a transaction to however many users they are. We send a single transaction that up updates this coefficient of expansion, which then reflects itself across all wallets immediately. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, about the Oracle. So the Oracle question is very interesting because it's one of the few things that's different than Bitcoin. So internally, we try to design an asset that's as similar to Bitcoin as possible while being significantly different and while you know, taking a step forward. One of the things that wasn't present when Bitcoin launched in 2009 uh, was exchanges. There, there's no notion of an exchange rate uh, for Bitcoin. And so, of course, there cannot be this feedback loop whatsoever they had a very limited set of choices in terms of how how to design their supply policy it was either going to be something like a fixed supply or you know constant inflating supply or some simple function um, that doesn't have a feedback loop um, and, and it turns out that this feedback loop is is um, really really important because it, it addresses the one long-standing question we have about commodity money there, there really aren't that many problems with gold as a money it's, it's great money um, it's really just the fact that it, it's, uh, it can't really respond to sudden changes in demand and it, it is thus vulnerable to, you know, sudden distortions or economic phenomena like what we experienced at the end of Bretton Woods. And therefore, it's very difficult to build a, you know, a long lasting banking system on top of or to support a very thriving economy. Now, I don't think that this is a criticism of Bitcoin whatsoever. I actually think that Bitcoin can deliver profound value 
without ever becoming a widely used media of exchange. And, and so can Amples for that matter. Right. And, um, I, you know, the, the ability to give people another, um, space to store value that's not being pushed around by the same macro forces that are so intertwined that we all are victim to now, like, for example, U.S.-China relations, like us being a global consumer, them being a global producer, um, the entire global economy revolves around that. But equities markets are affected by that. Real estate's affected by that. Bonds are affected by that. But Bitcoin isn't. It, it's its lack of connection to traditional assets is what, is what makes it valuable, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that value is extremely profound, whether it becomes a widely circulated media of exchange or whether it becomes simply a digital gold that's liquid and large. Um, because we, we do kind of suffer for, from this, you know, kind of thing called Robert Triffin's dilemma, which is the conflict um, between near-term domestic and you know, long-term global interests that inherently exists when a nation's currency is also used as a global reserve currency. Mm. But yeah, back to this chain question, uh, one of the things that separates us from Bitcoin again is, is this input, right, price exchange rate. And it's a point of concern for us because it, uh, we rely on central feeds to provide us this information. It's, it's the one kind of thing um, that, that that's risky here, but it, just as it's the one thing that it advances us you know, beyond gold, it's also the one potential point of failure because, you know, it means you have to trust the central provider of data. And right. so we initially had a single Oracle, um, our own, right, which was kind of receiving price exchange rate information, volume weighted price exchange rate information on a daily basis from um, the exchanges that um, had listed us and, and, you know, had access to this price exchange information. Uh, and then we went on to kind of integrate with Chainlink, um, which further diversifies um, the the Oracle input across like several aggregators of um, price exchange information across many, many exchanges. In fact, all the exchanges that we're currently trading on. Um, and, and that helps a little. And, and one thing I'm really excited by is um, a future potential integration with, with Uniswap V2 because they'll have an on-chain Oracle. And hmm. so that will be really interesting in the sense that um, it, it, you know, behaves according to swaps, right? And there's a bonding curve, so it's not exactly the same price discovery mechanism, but it's entirely on-chain. And so while there isn't a generalized solution to the Oracle problem yet, um, there is an on-chain solution to our Oracle problem, which is the price exchange rate Oracle problem. And so going back to the analogy of, again, the alien metal or mercury, what have you, it's a difference between, you know, for example, the metal responding to a bunch of sensors across the world that broadcast, you know, temperature information to the metal and then it reacts and it having a thermometer poking out of the side of its arm, right? Direct, um, direct feedback um, that doesn't require on hops or intermediaries. And so that'll be an interesting step forward. And, and of course, we're going to need all of these things, right? Because the aggregator can make sure that, you know, the input that you're getting just as in the temperature example, you want to know that um, your your expansion and contraction is reflecting kind of the, the average temperature of, of the world as opposed to just like the temperature of the thing that you're in direct contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, we want all of these sources of information. So we want um, a, a decentralized community of curators providing you know price exchange rate information from all sorts of data sources contributing to this feed. But we also want our direct analog input feed, if you will, um, of the on-chain Oracle. And so that's exciting. 
to me because um, it brings us just that much closer um, to doing something super cool. Yes. So I want to get a, uh, an idea for people. You know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, very intricate economic principles here. And so I want to get into the use cases of Ample. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, this notion of kind of in the DeFi space with Uniswap. And so I kind of get an idea so people can understand what Amples would be used for. Would it be used for a portfolio diversifier? So if you were building a book of digital assets, would you have that there? Would you use it for reserve collateral and DeFi uh, institutions like BlockFi? Or obviously when you're talking about Uniswap, you know, where in the ecosystem of digital assets would ample in your opinion from the use cases that you're starting to see be expressed yeah i mean so yeah like i said just out the gate we designed this to be a one-for-one swap that would have worked under Bretton woods but obviously that's not you know the problem that we face today um i think that one of the interesting the one of the most interesting things about our protocol that you know our advisors at the hoover institute really kind of forced us to analyze um is the fact that like gains and losses in, in the ample system are reflected not just by price, but by quantity as well. So, I mean, so you can almost say this categorically, like throughout time, you know, the quantity of units you have in your wallet remains fixed, but the value of the unit itself could increase or decrease. Price is, is kind of free to move, but quantity is generally fixed in our system because quantity responds to price. Um, gains and losses in the network are reflected not just by price, but by the product of price times quantity. And this kind of introduces a different kind of incentive mechanism. And just stepping back real quick, you might be aware that the entire system space is kind of um, really uh, weighed down by this hypercorrelation problem. So, mm-hmm. you know, Bitcoin came out and then Ethereum came out and then thousands of coins came out. But if you look at um, the movement pattern and correlations across these coins, they're really hyper correlated in a way that I think like, you know, we would never see in, in things like the equity markets. Um, so, you know, coins that are addressing completely different problems, like let's say like, you know, uh, the Oracle problem, or maybe you're trying to decentralize coffee delivery or something like that. Like as long as you have a coin out there and it's trading on exchange, it's probably moving in near lockstep with ETH. Um, and that makes it very, very difficult to diversify. Um, and so part of our thesis here, and it's starting to really bear out, which is another thing that excites me, is that, you know, the policy itself introduces a different set of incentives that will result in a step function like movement pattern. And therefore, the coin has the potential to really decorrelate from other dish- digital assets over time and, and become neither correlated with like, you know, Bitcoin and ETH nor correlated with traditional assets. And so... Uh, it is something that I would put into a portfolio um, that's attempting to diversify away from digital assets because right now, you know, you, even traders are starting to think like, well, why should I buy a bunch of alts if they move up and down exactly the same way? I'd rather just kind of leverage up on my Bitcoin. I'm just going to get my beta there. Um, there's no diversification. Um, and, and really, that's just one of two methods of common, that we commonly employ of risk reduction. There's hedging, which we do see. And there's diversification, which we really don't see. I mean, I was just looking at the Gemini app the other day, and I'm kind of a fan of their set of assets. And there's this big diversify button, and it's like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Zcash. I'm just like ETH, right? These things aren't really going to be diversified, not not in the portfolio theory manner anyways. They, they're going to co-vary 
very tightly. Um, and, and that makes it very difficult to construct portfolios, which is, you know, one of the great benefits of the Ample. And, you know, while it's currently still very small, it's a, it's a beanie baby. So to your listeners, if, let's just say they're major kind of institutional investors, like it's not yet for them, but they should tell the people that they fund to maybe investigate it. It's a, it's a beanie baby. Um, but it could grow to become something that's very, very useful for diversification and therefore useful for decentralized finance. Because in, in DeFi, I kind of think of, you know, there, there are a couple primitive assets, Bitcoin and Ethereum, right, with which, um, you know, the, the ecosystem uses to construct new financial instruments. Like you could take MakerDAO as an example, which started using ETH as collateral or, or compound. Um, these primitives, uh, are going to be much more powerful in, in constructing new instruments if they're not so hyper-correlated, right? You don't want, you know, a thousand assets that literally move up and down and lock step with one another, right? That, that's why we you see so much over-collateralization because right. space is inherently volatile and all of the coins move up and down together, meaning you can't diversify your risk or you can't minimize the covariance right, between assets in a given portfolio or whatever you want to call it. And thus, to account for this extreme volatility, you have to over collateralize by several hundred percent. Again, something that's, you know, really, really uh, outlandish by traditional asset standards or in the case of synthetics, I believe it's something like 700% over collateralized. And so um, if, if the coins themselves weren't so hyper correlated, um, we wouldn't have to have such inefficient collateralization um, systems. And um, that would be, that would be great. So in the near term, I, I see it as a, you know, it's a high risk, high reward asset um, that you could purchase and um, it, it could become eventually a, a diversifying agent within crypto portfolios, but it could also become a, a new primitive building block through which we could construct more robust instruments in, in DeFi. And, and this problem has afflicted makers such that like, you know, number one, you know, obviously you can't just you know, consume all the world's ETH, right? So, I mean, what happens if DAI becomes bigger than ETH? Um, it, it's inefficient to be over collateralizing in that capacity, especially given the supply policy of ETH. It's not responding to, you know, demand. It, it's it's emitting at, at a predefined rate. Um, and, um, you know, they, they've been pushed to the point that they're considering, you know, using centralized assets as collateral, right? Because that's where you're going to get your source of diversification. But um, then, you become, you know, at risk of, of censorship. And so, you know, with, with things like Digix Gold and other things that are, you know, very centralized, um, you know, I think that really speaks to the problem of hypercorrelation at hand. And coincidentally, this is really just sheer luck. Because again, we design, we try to design the ideal, you know, base money, but we realized as a result of this protocol, um, we're going to have something that simply can't move in lockstep with the other coins. Like one of the reasons I think things are hyper-correlated is because these assets themselves don't trade on the same fundamentals as, as traditional assets. They, they, they trade based on like, you know, um, momentum and proxies for news coverage and such. Um, and you have a lot of algorithmic trading where they kind of, you know, predict kind of the pattern of any given coin based on the movement of Bitcoin as a copy and paste strategy. And in fact, you know, thinking about a shelling point, um, you know, if I'm a trader to assume otherwise would be dangerous. Like say, you know, given a, a floating price token to assume that it's not going to go down if Bitcoin goes down would be dangerous. Right. Um, to assume that it's not going to go up if Bitcoin goes up would be dangerous. And so it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where everything kind of moves in lockstep unless it's something like Tether, which you know, has its explanation, it's, it's collateralized or 
or is kind of like a platform token like BNB with a discretionary burn, right? Where, you know, they will kind of just destroy supply, right? Mm-hmm. To, to maintain, you know, a desirable price or, or something connected with revenue, like, you know, with Leo, right? So the, the ones that have supplies that react, um, differently um, will be less likely to move exactly the same way. And in the case of the Ample, um, you know, profit maximizing trader would not be able to simply copy and paste their Bitcoin and apply it. And that really gives it the potential to decorrelate. Um, right. So again, all of these use cases that we discussed, one, diversification in crypto portfolios, two, collateral asset in decentralized banks, or three, an alternative central bank. Uh, money kind of come from these properties. At least the first two come from its ability to diversify, and the third comes from kind of its um, supply elasticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a super interesting conversation because, as I said on the onset, uh, this is not a stable coin that people are starting to get up to speed on the notion of a stable coin. And as you kind of already alluded to, going through the in between the lines there, you know, there are stable coins that are over collateralized with other digital assets like Maker does with DAI. There is other ones out there that are using more centralization features that are using assets that are stable. There are ones out there that are using dollars, you know, that Tether was supposed to be doing. And so there are like, different... I, I would go ahead and just say, like, if I'm going to speak the language of crypto, um, it's a lot like Bitcoin, except for in the long run, and be- instead of becoming a digital gold, it becomes a stable coin. Now, now I'm going to caveat that by saying, like, I prefer not to use crypto specific language, because, you know, as you're kind of alluding to here, the concept of a stable coin, that's not an economic concept, right? It, I mean, it, it's loosely defined and you know, some of these stable coins are considered banks and some of them, at least in our case, could be considered a, a long-term stable coin that's actually a money. Um, and that's why we really, really try to stay away from that vernacular and try to stick to the economics. Like, I think the concept of a stable coin as it's understood today in its use case is typically construed as something that is used as a base trading pair token on exchanges like Tether or might be more suitable for peer-to-peer payments. Um uh, that's not really where we are, really. We're we're kind of this high-risk, high-reward asset that has a step function like movement pattern. But you could think of it as similar to Bitcoin, except for in its long-term state, it has an equilibrium, right, which allows it to become a truly decentralized, I guess, in crypto lingo, non-collateralized stablecoin in the long run. So imagine if Bitcoin, which is itself not collateralized, just as all base monies are not collateralized, right? Imagine if Bitcoin in its you know, distant steady state future were to become a, a stable coin. That's kind of what Amples were designed to do. But again, I would I would encourage all of your listeners to kind of, you know, attempt and to kind of use language of, of economics to describe these things because we wouldn't call it a non-collateralized stable coin in economic, you know, language. We would call it a counter-cyclical commodity money with perfect supply elasticity and non-zero long-run equilibria that's unrelated to cost of production. And so anytime I'm talking to a monetary economist and I explain it that way, they immediately understand where this fits to a big macroeconomic puzzle and they think it looks really cool, which is what makes it a beanie baby to the people who've been staring at this puzzle for a long time. Uh, but, you know, if I'm speaking the language of, you know, crypto, I'm calling it at all a stable coin, there's all these misconceptions in terms yep. of what it's used for. And and intertwined with these mis- misconceptions is, I think, um, a, a commingling of the concept of a bank and money. And so 
I'm really trying to push people towards kind of more economic literacy uh, and being conscious of like the fact that much of what's being done in, in DeFi is, is uh, kind of simple banks, right? Whereas Bitcoin is a money. Makes sense. Um, super interesting. And I, I, I definitely appreciate people out there that are trying to, you know, wedge, you know, away from crypto native language to more it's language. Yeah. It just hasn't been around long and long enough to start to formalize itself. Um, and, and so I think it's useful for what it is. And I love that it's, you know, there are some things are very new concepts and they require new words, but many things are actually old concepts that have really, really good informal vocabulary that we can use to kind of communicate better. Exactly. And so as we're winding down, one of the two things that we like to do towards the end of the show to get an idea about the people that come on, we usually like, and I have a feeling this is going to be a very profound answer from you because I know that you guys have a tremendous amount of things that you read there. And if you go to their website, folks, that, you know, they have a lot of references to things out there that have envisioned, have kind of been the foundational blocks of what they've been building there. So anything that you've read recently that was profound, it could be, you know, obviously economic, it could be crypto, it could be fiction, it could be nonfiction, whatever something that you've read recently that was really profound that you wanted to tell everyone else about it. And then any music that you listen to. And I think this is a interesting trait um, or personality tell to see what, you know, while you're traveling or working, what you might be listening to while you're doing your day-to-day stuff. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I guess I recommended three books at our community meeting last week and I'll, I'll recommend them again here. Um, one is naked by David Sedaris, which isn't quite a new book, but you know, it's, it's a series of really great short stories that are written just in a hilarious way with fantastic writing. Um, and I, I really do think that reading fiction you know, helps increase empathy and it teaches you how to write better. It, it teaches you how to speak to people and tell stories. Um, the other thing that I recommend to people in general is Neil Ferguson's Ascent of Money, um, just as it was required reading at the time of the financial crisis. I also believe it's now required reading for anybody who's serious about crypto because um, there, there's so much to the, the, the history, the theory and the macroeconomics of money that he does such a great job of condensing. And I think it's just, you know, really valuable to the work that's being done here. And, and lastly, the thing that I'm reading um, is uh, Paul Krugman's Arguing with Zombies, which came out on the 28th. It's very new. Um, and I was drawn to it. And, and here's where things get a little bit profound, I, although not too heavy, I don't think, uh, was just actually the introduction. And so any Krugman, who throughout his life has been championed as ideologically colorblind, he was always kind of providing um, you know, positive economics as opposed to normative economics, like, you know, statements of things as they are and they and are likely to be positive versus normative economics, like, you know, statements of how things should be. Um, but, you know, throughout the years, he's kind of started to change his tone and um, taken more ideologically colorful uh, perspectives on things. And, it, and he claims that it's not, it's not him who's changed it's the world that's changed. And, um, in a way, he's right. Um, it, it may be the case that ideologically colorblind statements no longer exist anymore. And so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting inflection because there, there are the people who 
you know, have been preparing for the zombie apocalypse them, their entire life, despite knowing that it's bad for mankind. And it's like, now's the moment I can be as loud and obnoxious as I can. The world is my oyster. And then there are the folks like Paul Krugman, who's fought so hard for so long to avoid that reality, um, starting to change his tone as well. And um, it's it's an interesting thing to investigate, right? Just this technocrat, um, you know, turning into something different, certainly not something as unaware as Trump derangement, as people might call it, but something more conscious of the times. Um, it's, it's something that I think uh, we're all thinking about, you know, ever since I heard that Sasha Baron Cohen speech and, you know, mm-hmm. now Friedman, it, it's just, it's such a, it's such an interesting time, but also a difficult time for people who try to describe things as they are. Often those people who can present the truth right. are simply get unheard. And he can pierce the veil, so there's a lesson to be learned there. Right. In terms of music, lastly, I would say that I'm, you know, the the the, the musician that's constantly on repeat for me is definitely just Odessa. Huh. Um, it, it's it's not particularly um, niche, like a lot of people love this band, but I, I really feel like um, they try to kind of continually crescendo into an experience that brings you closer and closer to the intersection of truth and beauty in a very kind of pervasive way. And so I just kind of, I've always liked that orchestral, even uh, epic. And so I constantly listen to that. Awesome. And the last thing that we'd like to do with folks is where can people get more information about Ample and Ampleforth, what you guys are doing, how can they get involved? I would, I would absolutely encourage you to visit ampleforth.org. You know, you mentioned this earlier, but we've, You've written, you know, this thing called the Red Book that has a full course in monetary economics and classifies the assets in six different ways that I think um, anybody who has an appreciation for economics can can enjoy. Um, and I would encourage anybody to contact me directly if they'd like to kind of meet up or uh, learn more or collaborate. Um, just you can just email Evan at ampleforth.org. Awesome. Well, this was a very, very comprehensive discussion. I really enjoyed your kind of your mission and about creating something that lasts longer than all of us are on this planet and heading into that ethereal plane. So that is super, really deep and profound. And the idea of obviously using more economic theories and practices instead of just talking crypto native, I think is something that I'm fully supportive and something that we do on the show a lot too. So hope to have you back as things continue to progress forth with Ample Forth and Ample. And so thank you for joining us and we'll be catching you soon, Evan. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Dave. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit 
ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.